God, would we see him as beautiful this morning? Uh, Lord, would we see him high and lifted up on the cross? Would we we see him seated at the right hand of the Father and see him as beautiful? Father, as we speak of justice, may we see Christ this morning. Um, May he move in us and through us this morning to act. May our justice-seeking be motivated by the grace that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. You're so kind to us, showing us mercy when we don't deserve it, showering with grace upon us day in and day out. So, Father, would you move across the airwaves this morning, across the web as people hear your word this morning. Christ be magnified through it. May his message go across the globe this morning and be seen as full. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for shedding your blood for us. Thank you for undeserved kindness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, maybe a week or so ago, I Asked Richard if I could preach this morning. I had a stirring in my heart, I believe from the Spirit, uh, to teach on the topic of justice this morning. As part of discipling each other through the times in which we find ourselves, I felt moved that we spend an entire message on this topic. As Richard said to us last week, uh, we have been inundated with information from social media and traditional media about what is right, but have we looked at what the Bible says about justice, and specifically the Christian response to racial injustice. I want to know what should my posture be as an individual believer, and what should our response be as a community of believers here at Hope Point. This is a topical sermon, but it's rooted in in Scripture. You can call it maybe a topical exposition or a systematic study of justice in the Bible. My sermon this morning is based on a book by Timothy Keller called Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just. Most of what I say this morning I learned from this book. In fact, if you quote me this morning, you're probably quoting Timothy Keller. Uh, I encourage you to, to pick up the book and read it. There is so much more in this little book than I can convey in a 35 or 40 minute sermon. It's the best systematic study on the topic that I've seen out there, and there are few theologians alive today that I trust more than Timothy Keller. I've titled my sermon, though, Gospel-Driven Justice, A Case for Biblical Justice. Gospel-Driven Justice, because that is our aim this morning, that when we go out seeking justice, may it be driven by our understanding of the gospel and driven by our experiences of grace of Jesus Christ. So the way I want to sort of walk through this study this morning is by answering five questions. Why preach on justice? Why even talk about this at all? What does it mean to do justice? What does justice say about your religion? Or maybe the lack of justice, what does that say about your religion? 
What did Jesus say about justice? Does he carry this theme on through the New Testament? And then finally, why should we do justice? I'm sort of bookending this talk in, in two whys. Why do justice? And this, I think, is our motivation for doing justice. So let's start with the question, why preach on justice? Isaiah 42 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. In fact, Matthew quotes this uh, prophecy when he describes Jesus as the chosen servant in Matthew 12. Let me read the prophecy straight from Isaiah 42. Verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He's going to bring forth justice, but not like people think. Verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So why preach on justice? Because the Messiah is deeply concerned with justice in the earth. Bringing justice to the nations was one of the reasons why he came to this earth. The divine order has been deeply disarranged because of sin. Christ, the chosen servant, gentle yet powerful, unflinching in his missions, he's not going to stop. He will bring justice to victory, as Matthew says it when he quotes this prophecy, that Jesus will bring justice to victory in the earth, not by destroying the nations, no, but by becoming the very hope of the nations. That's how Jesus is bringing justice to the nations. So why preach on justice? Because most believers know that Jesus came to bring forgiveness and grace, but less well-known is the biblical teaching that a true experience of the grace of Jesus Christ in your life will inevitably move you to seek justice in this world. A true experience of the grace of Jesus Christ in your life will inevitably move you to do justice in this world. And I will attempt to show you that this morning. Now, when you begin to sort of consider seeking justice as a believer, there are two errors that we want to avoid. The first error is, well, really, they're, they're on opposite extremes if you're sort of thinking about these at the same time. The first error is that Jesus gets lost in your justice seeking. It becomes all about the needs, and nothing is ever said about the one who can meet the ultimate need, and that is Jesus Christ. In our joy to care for the needy and the marginalized, we cannot lose sight of God's redemptive plan in bringing justice to this earth. Let's seek justice, but in a way that Christ remains at the center of our justice seeking. I hope today's message will help us do that. That's error number one, losing Christ in our seeking justice. The second error is on the other extreme. Because of the abuse of the doctrine of justice by some in the minds of many Christians, doing justice is inseparably linked with the loss of sound doctrine. Many in this group will say things like, pursuing justice is a distraction to the gospel. I understand the sentiment behind this. It's gospel fidelity. 
right? We want to stay faithful to the gospel. The fear is that Christ will be lost in the pursuit of justice. I want you to know today that this does not have to be the case. Just because someone has abused a doctrine doesn't mean we avoid the doctrine altogether in its truest form. When the Spirit enables us to understand what Christ has done for us, the result is a life poured out in deeds of justice and compassion for the marginalized. We don't have to give up sound doctrine to do the work of justice. So my aim today, with Keller's help, is to show you that those impacted by the grace of Jesus Christ can passionately seek justice while avoiding these two errors. The biblical doctrine of justice is so intertwined with the gospel that they are inseparable and we shouldn't be reluctant or fearful to seek justice or social reform. I love this quote from the book. Timothy Keller says, A concern for justice in all aspects of life is neither an artificial add-on nor a contradiction to the message of the Bible. This is what we're after today. I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you will understand this beautiful truth and that you will be motivated by your experience with the grace of Jesus Christ in your life to seek justice in all aspects of life and especially in the area of racial inequality where the church has historically been slow and has shown lack of concern. So that's why we're preaching about justice today. Number two, what does justice mean? This is critical. Prophet uh, Micah says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? This is the godly life. This is the beautiful life, and to it we are called. Make no mistake, we will never live up to this perfectly. Jesus Christ did this perfectly, right? However, as, we, as he indwells his people by his spirit, they are enabled to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with their God just as he did. His spirit is in us. Micah 6.8 is a summary of how God wants us to live. The verse says, do justice and love mercy, which at first sort of seems contradictory, right? Like either somebody gets mercy, they get let off of something they've done, or they get justice and they get the punishment for what they have done. But this is not the case. The term kindness here, or mercy as some translations render it, is this word hesed. We're familiar with this word. Richard has taught us what this word means over the years. It's God's unconditional grace and compassion, right? And the word justice in Hebrew is mishpat, mishpat. So in Micah 6, 8, mishpah is the action and hesed is the motive behind the action, right? So then to walk with God, we must do justice out of a merciful love and kindness. So God puts his hesed love in us and we bend that out in justice around us. So it's sort of like this, this vertical to horizontal movement that we always see in the Bible. We get God's hesed, and then we bend it out horizontally, mishpat, injustice to those around us. Vertical to horizontal. 
The word mishpat in its various forms is used more than 200 times in the Old Testament. That alone should tell us how important justice is to our God. Its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. So I'm going to show you some of the few occurrences in the Bible that that show that justice is more than just punishment for wrongdoing. It's more comprehensive than that in the Bible. This Hebrew word mishpat is comprehensive and, and more than just that. Let's start with Leviticus 24. It says, You shall have the same rule mishpat for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Sojourner is, is immigrant, right? The Bible says whether you're a stranger or a member of the community, we are to acquit or punish based on the merits of the case. Same rule. Whether you're a family or whether you're a stranger. Mishpat. But it means more than a fair trial. It also means giving people their rights. In Deuteronomy 18, it directs us that the priest should be supported by a certain percentage of the people's income. And look what Deuteronomy 18 says. And this percentage shall be the priest's due. Same Hebrew word, mishpat. Right? This is their due. This is their right for their services. This is what owed to them. So mishpat includes giving people what they are due, whether it's punishment or basic human rights like protection and care. Over and over again, mishpat describes taking care of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor in the Bible. These four groups mentioned over and over again in the Bible. Look at Zechariah 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, mishpat, show kindness and mercy to one another, and do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. During Old Testament times, these four groups of people had no social power. So if you sort of bring it forward to today, then this is not a comprehensive list of all the vulnerable people in any given society, but it should get us, get, give us the idea that justice is due to the marginalized and the overlooked in society. Any neglect shown to the needs of these is not merely a lack of mercy, as bad as that would be, but a violation of justice, a violation of mishpat. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power. And so should we. That's what it means to do justice. It means to love and defend those who lack the resources and power to defend themselves. God is concerned about justice. Consider these texts. He executes justice, mishpat. For the oppressed and gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoner free. Listen to all what the Lord does. Next verse. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. The way of the wicked he brings to ruin. What about Deuteronomy 10, 18? He executes justice, mishpat, for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. What flows out of God's heart is giving and generosity for the marginalized, 
flows out of God's heart. God not only talks about these vulnerable groups, but he identifies with them. God identifies with the powerless. What about Psalm 68, 5? Father of the fatherless and protector of the widow is God in his holy habitation. When I introduce myself as husband to Judy, father to Carly, Nick, Millie, and Noah, and executive pastor at Hope Point Church, it is because these are the most important things in my life. So what does it say about God then when he introduces himself as father to the fatherless and protector of the widow? The powerless are important to God. The powerless are important to God. Since most of the people who are downtrodden by abusive power are those who had little power to begin with, God gives them particular attention. God gives these vulnerable people particular attention. So while it is true that all lives matter, God shows special concern for those who lack power and have no voice in society. This is what he tells us in Proverbs 31. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. The people likewise are expected to be passionately concerned for the weak and the vulnerable. God injects his concern for the vulnerable into the very heart of the Israelite community in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed, strong language here. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice, mishpat, due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Jeremiah 22, 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice, mishpat, and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. God, if God's character includes a zeal for justice that leads him to have the tenderest of love and closest involvement with the socially weak, then what should God's people be like? This is our God. Listen, there's more to justice than this. 200 verses in the Old Testament. So I'm going to leave it here for today. So what is justice? Justice is care for the vulnerable. It means to take action motivated by the heart of mercy on behalf of those who have been exploited for their lack of power. Justice flows from the heart of God. It reflects his character. God is justice. This is what justice is. Question number three, what does justice say about your religion? What does justice say about your religion? We'll go to Isaiah 1 for this. Isaiah 1, 17 says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. Why was God through the prophet Isaiah telling Israel to seek justice? The answer is because a religion full of religious activity and void of justice-seeking is an abomination to God. God described Israel in verse 2 of chapter 1 as rebellious children. And then in verse 4, he says this about them, that you're a sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. He said in verse 9 that if it hadn't been for just a few, he would have done to them what he had done to Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verses 11, you sort of see his frustration building with the Israelites. 
What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls of, or, of ram, or of lambs or of goats. He was tired of their sacrifices, their religious observances, not because of the quantity of their sacrifices, but because their lives did not match their worship rituals. So God says in verse 9 that I'm just weary. I'm weary with you. They failed to realize that the performance of rituals without engaging the heart was an affront to God. The evidence that their hearts were not engaged was their deeds. They were evil, namely that they did not seek justice or relieve oppression in their land. The ESV study Bible says this about verse 17, doing good in God's sight includes seeking the just functioning of society. The implications are are clear here. Justice is not one more thing that needs to be added to the people's portfolio of religious behavior. A lack of concern for justice is a sign that the worshippers' hearts were not right with God. That's what Isaiah 1 is teaching us. So what does justice say about your religion? It gauges the truthfulness of it. Question number four. What about Jesus? What did Jesus say about justice? When you study the Gospels, we find that Jesus has not moved on from all the Old Testament's concern with justice. In fact, Jesus has an intense interest in love and love for the same kinds of vulnerable people that God had in the Old Testament. While clearly Jesus was preaching good news to all, he showed throughout his ministry the same particular interest in the poor and the downtrodden that God has always had. You see this throughout the gospel. It's obvious that this is true because in his incarnation he left riches and fame and glory and comfort of heaven and moved in with the poor, broken humanity of this world. Furthermore, you can see it in his ministry and his lifestyle. He lived and associated with the socially ostracized throughout his ministry on earth. What about his teaching? In Luke 14, he challenged people to routinely open their homes and purses to the poor, the blind, the maimed, the sick. Look at Luke 14. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or, or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So who do we invite, Jesus? But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Christ modeled and taught concern for the vulnerable. He demonstrated and preached justice for the disadvantaged. In fact, he used justice as heart analysis, the sign of true faith, just like the Old Testament did. Jesus taught that an encounter with grace inevitably leads us to a life of justice. Jesus' criticism of the religious leaders in Mark 12 was identical to God who concluded that these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Look at what he says to these religious leaders. Mark 12, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace. But what do they do? Devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. 
It revealed their hearts. Behind their excessive religious activities are lives that are insensitive to the vulnerable classes. In Jesus' view, this revealed that they did not know God or his grace at all. They didn't understand his grace if they're acting this way. It's even more clear from Jesus in Luke 11. He says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglect, without neglecting the others. They were very religious but neglected justice and the love of God. Jesus taught that a lack of concern for the vulnerable is not a mere lapse, but reveals something about the heart, that something seriously is wrong with the heart, with our moral compass. If we're all about our religious activities and we look over the needs of the vulnerable. Y'all remember the parable of the sheep and the goats from Matthew 25? On Judgment Day, he taught that there will be many who claim to have believed in him whom he will reject, right? His true sheep, he insisted, have a heart for the least of these, my brethren, which Jesus defined as what? Hungry, strangers, naked, the sick, and imprisoned. Jesus did not say that all this done for the poor was a means to get salvation But rather, it was a sign that you already had salvation, that a true saving faith was already already present in you. That's what these things reveal. A true saving faith already resides in you. Christ said, when you did these things to them, you did them to me. This meant that one's heart attitude toward the poor reflected one's heart attitude toward Christ. That's heavy. A heart impacted by the grace of God is a heart tender to the needs of others. A heart impacted by the grace of Jesus Christ is tenderized toward the needs of others. This is what Jesus taught, and this is gospel-driven justice. Finally, question number five, why should we do justice? We know what it is. We know God's heart for it. We know the scriptures teach it. We know what Jesus says about it. But what is our motivation for doing it? On top of everything I've said, I see that there's two motivations that will help us sustain us as we seek justice in the world. The Bible not only gives us sort of this bare ethical obligation to do justice, but it gives us the inner heart motivation to do it, to do it from a right heart. And that's what I want to show you today. That it doesn't have to be out of, be out of guilt or obligation or self-interest or self-righteousness, but out of supernatural hesed and planted in us by the Spirit of Christ. The first biblically pure motive for doing justice is the love for the image of God. You might have heard of it, the Imago Dei doctrine. Genesis 1 tells us that all humanity is made in the image of God. The Bible teaches that there is a sacredness of God that is somehow imparted to us as humans. And every human being is sacred. Every human life has dignity. The reason God considers murder to be heinous is because that person is made in the image of God. Genesis 9 tells us this. 
And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. Why? For God made man in his own image. The New Testament takes us a step further. James 3, with the mouth we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. There is something so valuable about human beings that, they not, that we're not only allowed to not murder each other, but we can't even curse each other because of the value bestowed upon us by God. You are made in the image of God, and that has value. The doctrine of the Imago Dei was at the very heart of the civil rights movement. Dr. King said this about the Imago Dei. All men have something within them that God injected. And this gives them a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. There are no graduations from the image of God. We never get past that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. This is why we must fight segregation with all of our nonviolent might. So the image of God then is the first great motivation for living lives that seek justice for all, serving the needs and guarding the rights of those around us. But the second, and in in my opinion, the most important biblical motivation for doing justice is the experience of God's grace in, in our lives. This is what moves us because something was done for us greater than we could do for ourselves. And it's not just a New Testament idea or theme. The Old Testament is where it started. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19, for the Lord your God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner. Why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Why do we love the stranger? Because we were once strangers. The Israelites had been poor racial outsiders in Egypt. How then, Moses asked, could they be callous to the racial outsiders in their own midst? God is saying, I liberated you by my grace. Now go do the same for others. Grace should make us just. Grace should make us act justly. Because we got something we don't deserve. How can we deny justice to those around us when we ourselves got mercy when we deserve justice? Let me close, I'm going to close with this. This is totally Tim, Timothy Keller. Like if you study him at all, this is all Keller right here. Jesus taught us to love our neighbors as ourselves, Right? You know the Good Samaritan parable when Jesus told the Pharisees, love the Lord God all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then the Pharisee, trying to justify himself, said, well then, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And it's typical for us to think that our neighbors are people of the same social class and means. Luke 14 tells us that, of who to invite. And we tend to limit how we exhort ourselves, Right? We do it for people that like us, and we do it for people that look like us. But Christ will have none of this. 
By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have been more forceful in saying that anybody in need at all, regardless of race, politics, class, or religion, is your neighbor. Anyone in need at all is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in Christ, but everyone is your neighbor. And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So notice that Jesus here, this is key, that Jesus is talking to a Jew, right? And what does Jesus do in his parable? He puts a Jew in the road as a victim. Talking to a Jew puts a Jew in the road as a victim. In other words, he's asking each of his listeners to imagine himself to be the victim of violence and dying with no hope if the Samaritan does not stop and rescue him. How would you want that Samaritan to act if that was your situation on a dangerous street maybe? Uh, Someone from another race comes by. Obviously, the answer is, I want that person to act with mercy on me. You see, according to the Bible, we are like that man dying in the road. Spiritually, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. But when Jesus came into our dangerous world, world, he came down our road. And though we had been his enemies, he was moved with compassion by our plight. He came to us and saved us, not only at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. On the cross, he paid a debt we could have never paid ourselves. So as Keller puts it, Jesus is the great Samaritan to whom the good Samaritan points us. We need this great Samaritan. So before you can give this neighbor love, you need to receive it. Only if you have been impacted By the grace of God in your life who owes you nothing, really owes you the opposite, can you go out into the world looking to help absolutely anyone in need? Once we receive this ultimate radical neighbor love through Jesus Christ, we can start to be the neighbors that the Bible calls us to be. This is gospel-driven justice. Listen, our acts of justice-seeking in the world, do they not demonstrate to a lost and dying world what Christ did for us? Does it not point to Christ when the strong disadvantage themselves for the weak? Does it not point people to Christ when the majority inconveniences themselves for the minority? This is gospel-driven justice. In Jesus Christ, God identified not only with the poor, but all those who have been denied justice. Jesus, the Son of God, knows what it's like to be a victim of injustice. And on Judgment Day, we cannot say to the Lord, when did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked? And when did we see you captive? Because the answer is on the cross. There we see how far God was willing to go to identify with the oppressed of the world. And he was doing it all for us. There Jesus, who deserved acquittal and freedom, got condemnation. So that we who deserve condemnation for our sins might receive acquittal. 
This was the ultimate instance of God's identification with the poor. He not only came, became one of the actually poor and marginalized, he stood in the place of all those of us who are spiritually poor, who are spiritually bankrupt and paid the debt that we could not pay. Now that is a beautiful thing. To take that into the center of your heart and in the center of your life makes you one of the just. And this whole point is gospel-driven justice. We take God's hesed and bend it out in justice to those around us. Let's seek justice. So how do we begin? Well, let me say this. We, in many ways as a church, have been doing gospel-driven justice for years at Hope Point. And I love that about Hope Point. We have established and have partnered with ministries like English Crossing, Sidewalk Hope, Jumpstart, Switch, and Come Closer, seeking to do biblical justice, to bring justice to the immigrant and the vulnerable and the imprisoned here in Spartanburg and across the globe. But more recently, our hearts have been moved by recent events, and we want to do better as we seek justice in the area of racial inequalities. So the elders and the staff and others have been talking and praying and listening. And so over the next several weeks, we want to move in a few directions. And one of those is what we're calling courageous conversations. Courageous conversations. This Tuesday, starting at 7 p.m., Tuesday evening, 7 p.m., we will have our first Courageous Conversation. We want to create a safe place where you can ask questions to some of your black brothers and sisters in Christ here at Hope Point. They'll share their hearts, and you can ask questions, okay? The purpose of this is to create empathy, understanding, relationships, and unity as we begin to pursue gospel-driven justice in this area. We believe that with proximity comes empathy. It's easy to have an opinion based on what you watch in the media. But have you had a conversation with an African-American brother and sister with whom you share space with at this church? Who sits under the same preaching as you do? Whose kids are in the same small groups as yours? We believe this will be a healthy start for us. The way this will work are Zoom calls. Because of COVID, we have to do these over Zoom calls. We'll begin this Tuesday, like I said, at 7. And because the platform is Zoom and because we want to keep this intimate and small conversations, we're going to cap it at 25 people per conversation. So in order to maximize the number of people we have involved in these conversations, we're going to do it once a week for the next four weeks. And if the response is more than 100 people, we'll do it again. All right? We want to start these conversations. So... You can go to this website, hopepoint.org slash courageous. Don't forget the dash in the middle, conversations. Hopepoint.org slash courageous dash conversations. You can go there now or write it down, go, go there later. We'll be setting out an e-blast this afternoon with a link to go there and sign up uh, as well. You'll be able to even input, put a question in the box on the sign-up page so that we're ahead of time. We know some of the questions that are be coming. We are praying God uses this in a big way for his glory and our unity. Let's pray. Father, uh, 
It seems difficult, Lord, maybe overwhelming to look across the world, Lord, and see all the injustices that exist. As an individual and as a church, it just feels overwhelming. But that's what your church is here to do. You've indwelled us and empowered us to use all of our different gifts and all of our different passions to bring about gospel-driven justice. So, Lord, tenderize our hearts even more today by your word that was preached. Would we be moved by the overwhelming kindness that you showed us to pour out overwhelming kindness to those around us, to our neighbors, those that might not look like us, Lord, would we be moved to love our neighbors as ourselves? Would you plant that parable deep in our hearts and help us understand it more and more that you did that for us? You're the great Samaritan that came into our world and walked down our street and rescued us at the cost of your life. And you say, now go and do likewise. Oh, God, help us to do likewise. Help us to be overwhelmed by the experience of grace in our lives to bend that out in a horizontal way and do justice for those around us. Forgive us where we fall short. We're not perfect, God, and so we need your help and your wisdom in all the areas uh, that you're asking us to do this. Would you do that in our church, Father? We love you. Help us to worship you with full hearts right now, God. Let us see Christ as beautiful as the one who has done it all for us. In his name we pray. Amen.